1: Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
2: We look at the Financial Times or the Wall Street Journal, and that gives us a structure to think about the conventional instruments of, of finance. That structure is uh, it's not entirely absent uh, for crypto. The balance of power is very different. There's a lot more peer-to-peer influence and a lot more cross-talk in the crypto world than in the conventional finance world. It's much more complex to navigate. It's much harder to know who to trust, who is a real authority.
1: Hello, I'm Coindesk reporter Lee Quinn, here today with cognitive economist Lee Caldwell, author of The Psychology of Price. We're here to talk about mental health and cryptocurrency in a time of coronavirus crisis. Thanks for joining us today, Lee.
2: Hey, great to talk to you, Lee. Nice to speak with someone with my own name.
1: Yeah, this is the first time I've ever interviewed someone with my same name. So I'm really curious to hear from you. What do you think most people don't know or should know about how the brain works when it's thinking about price?
2: Right. Well, price is a very interesting concept in terms of the brain because it's something that is totally unnatural in evolutionary terms. Obviously, our brains evolved over hundreds of thousands of years uh, in an environment where there were no prices, and yet it has become really fundamental to how we navigate society today. We rely on prices all the time, and we rely on them as, I call it, an artificial neatener. It's a way of simplifying the decisions that we make. So the brain has got so many influences to deal with. If you were making any economic decision, any financial decision, there are so many different factors that, in theory, should come into play. So factors like, obviously, the amount of money that you might be paying for something, but also looking at the returns you would expect to get, looking at all of the different contingencies and possible future outcomes that would affect those returns. If it's a product you're buying, then you need to think about, you know, what's it going to taste like? If it's food, what's the environmental impact of it? Is uh, someone else in your life going to like this product? There are so many considerations, and in reality, it would be impossible for us to accurately take all those considerations into account when we make every choice. And so price becomes a really, really powerful way of simplifying that decision for us. The famous, most famous example is uh, you, know, you go into a restaurant. In today's world, we were still allowed to go into restaurants, and mm-hmm. you look at the menu and you see which bottle of wine am i going to buy your eye is going to be drawn to either the second cheapest or the second most expensive and i think you know we all divide into two types of people either are you the person that buys the second cheapest or the person that buys the second most expensive in a rare occasion you might go for the cheapest uh, but we always kind of want to stay away from that and this is a decision that has no real logic or rationality to it you know your decision about wine should be based on you know, the, the grapes that you like or the region it comes from, or whether it's oaked or unoaked, And yet, most of us are just guided by price as a really, really powerful cue to make that decision simpler for us. So price is something we use as a heuristic or a shortcut to make our choices simpler because we just cannot face dealing with the true complexity of the world.
1: I'm fascinated by the way that you say that it doesn't really matter personalities. sometimes, when you're put in a situation, people have tendencies to behave in certain ways. I'm curious how you think stress impacts that kind of decision making process. Do you think mm. that when people undergo stress, potentially even financial stress, like the kind that lots of us are going to face during the coronavirus crisis, that we might be more inclined to follow certain patterns?
2: Yes, well, stress has one very predictable effect on how we make decisions, and that is that it Shrinks the horizon of our decisions. So usually, when we're making choices, we have to make trade-offs between what I'm going to get right now from this and what I'm going to get in the future, or it might be the impact on me versus the impact on other people, other on my family or friends or the wider society, and we're always balancing the things that are close to us, which is you know my own interests right here in the immediate present versus things that are more distant, which is either my future self, maybe the the long-term returns I will get from a decision, or the interests of other people. And stress tends to bring us closer and closer to that self-interested and the immediate decision. So stress makes us focus more on what's happening right now and to ignore the long-term outcomes. And I think we can all imagine this happening in the coronavirus world, We may become focused more on immediate survival, like can I make it through the next two months? Do I have enough money to survive? If you're running a business, do you have enough money to make payroll in the next couple of months? You're not going to be thinking about investing for the long term. In some sense, that's a sensible response to an unpredictable situation. But in some ways, it's also just driven by the emotional stress. The stress hormones focus the brain and make us think in that more short-term way.
1: What do you recommend people do to identify their own biases when it comes to misunderstanding a price or to make less impulsive decisions when it comes Mm. to money?
2: Sure. Well, identifying your own biases. Uh, One good technique is uh, to try and spot uh, the way that people or companies are uh, playing on those biases and the heuristics that they're using. So if you uh, were to go around a store or let's say you go online and uh, look at the the different ways that people are presenting prices to you and you'll see a, a set of quite specific patterns so classic example is uh, you'll see something was fifty dollars now thirty dollars you know save forty percent or you might see buy one get one free uh, or you might say you might see uh, buy now pay later um, amazon is a one that i I always get this message whenever I buy something on amazon this could be this could cost you instead of uh twenty eight pounds this could cost you eight pounds if you buy it with the amazon mastercard and essentially, what they're saying is we'll give you twenty pounds to uh, buy this to take out this credit card, but they present it in a different way, so it makes it look like wow, I'm going to get a great deal on this thing. I'm buying. There's a set of tricks and you can find these, uh, these tricks. If you look for uh, psychological pricing tactics or, uh, or if, you, if you were kind enough to buy my book, you would see them in there. Uh, mm-hmm. You'll see a list of uh, different techniques that companies can use to change how you perceive prices. And the more that you uh, look out for those and the more that you spot companies doing that to you and look at the reaction that's going on inside your brain, then the more you will become aware of your own biases and be able to protect yourself against them. The way to reduce your own impulses, one of the most reliable ways, is to think about that future self. So I mentioned that stress can make you focus on today's self and not tomorrow's outcomes. So just project yourself forward. Put yourself in the mindset of yourself in three years' time. Or maybe 20 years time and think looking back at today from that viewpoint will I regret the decision I'm making or will I be happy that I made it and it's, you know in some ways that may seem an obvious thing to do but if you can teach yourself to use that as a, um, a practice uh, and every time you're making a big decision just put yourself a few years forward and look back again and say will I Uh, regret this or will I be happy with the decision I made? Very often you'll uh, reduce the impulses and things will get better.
1: That's so true. And you were talking a lot about the way that we are presented with prices, right? the way that we consume the information about things we can purchase or invest in or or not. And first thing that came to mind for me is crypto Twitter. Mm. I'm curious to hear your thoughts about crypto Twitter and how Mm -hmm. it is that you think about navigating this as a platform where we can both get informed about financial tools, but also is full of emotion in the way that those prices are talked about.
2: Yeah, well, very much so. I think it, it's a really interesting contrast with the way that the narratives about conventional finance and conventional money are structured, because those are much more hierarchical narratives. They're very much guided by government policy decisions or by mainstream media narratives. You know, we, all, we look at the Financial Times or the Wall Street Journal, and that gives us a structure to think about the conventional instruments of, of finance. That structure is uh, it's not entirely absent uh, for crypto because, of course, there's publications like your own where there's a media view on crypto, but the balance of power is very different. There's a lot more peer-to-peer influence and a lot more crosstalk in the crypto world than the conventional finance world. And really that means a couple of things. One, it's much more complex to navigate. It's much harder to know who to trust, who is a real authority, who you should listen to. There are, it's much easier for new narratives to emerge. um, And that's very democratic, uh, but it's also a lot more confusing. And it means that the brain both is probably forced to make, to take shortcuts, uh, and those shortcuts could be find a couple of trusted voices and just listen to them, or it could be look at what the majority is saying, uh, or it could be be contrarian and you know follow do the opposite of what the majority is saying uh, but we the brain always needs to find ways to manage and reduce the complexity uh, that it sees in its environment and those shortcuts um, can be they can be very useful, but they can sometimes be a bit misleading and you may rely too much on one shortcut and uh, sometimes sometimes make the wrong decision. I think Twitter is, it, uh, Twitter is an amazing platform that, that I love and I, I'm, I'm on it all the time. Uh, but if I took all of my decision cues from Twitter, uh, I think I would end up chasing my tail a lot and making myself very unhappy.
1: I hear you on that. Now um, you are bringing up this really important point of things being more complex sometimes than we see them as, and i'd like to turn the floor over to you a bit and learn more about i don 't know if it was called uh, systems three or, or system thinking that you'd mentioned mm-hmm. in your writing. can you tell me a little bit more about that
2: yeah, absolutely so if any of the, if any listeners have read about behavioral science or psychology uh, there's a good chance that you've heard of this idea of uh, the the different systems in the brain. Uh, So traditionally we think of two systems, system one and system two. Uh, And if you've read uh, Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, the title refers to these two systems. The the fast thinking is system one. That's your intuition, it's your emotional reactions, it's when you you see something and you have an immediate response to it. Uh, Or maybe you touch a, a hot stove and you immediately jump back Uh, or you recognize your baby's face and you have a a, a feeling of of love and emotion towards it. This is system one. System two is the logical, slow, rational brain, and that's where we stop to work out the numbers. So we might be calculating the expected return on an investment over multiple years. Your emotional intuitive brain is not going to do that for you. You have to use your calculations. But what we have started to discover in the last five years in the, the world of psychology, cognitive science, and neuroscience, is that there's a third kind of thinking. Uh, and that third kind of thinking is essentially the imagination. So much of the decision-making that we do is based on imagining and picturing the outcomes of those choices. So I might think, if I, if I buy a house today, I'm going to picture myself living in that house. Uh, I'm going to think about the financial consequences in terms of uh, what my, my future life might look like. I'll imagine uh, my life 20 years down the line with the consequences of the investments that I'm making today. Uh, but we also do this on a, on a short-term, more automatic basis. If I open up the uh, refrigerator and I look in, I will, my brain will unconsciously Run a little imaginative storytelling exercise on each piece of food in there or each drink i will uh, it will it will tell me what's it going to taste like if I reach for that beer uh, what's it going to be like if I uh, eat that piece of cheese uh, The brain is automatically imagining the outcomes of every possible decision that you might make uh, on a, an ongoing continuous permanent basis and that's what uh, we call system three it's the it's a, a way of making decisions that is not purely based on reacting on this kind of uh, trained um, behavioural response, which system one does. It's not based on calculating the best outcome, it's based on imagining what might happen and then determining, does that imagined outcome make me happy? Do I feel good about what I'm imagining? And if I do feel good about what I'm imagining, then I'll probably, uh, I'll probably do it. I'll probably make that choice. So that system three um, is this kind of newly uh, emerging area of understanding of how the human brain works. And I think it's uh, we're starting to recognize more and more how important it is. And it's important in the finance world, um, particularly because finance, in a way, finance is all about stories. Uh, finance even though there is a a numeric, uh, rational, hard-headed aspect to it. The the hard-headed aspect is kind of automatic. You can get your algorithms to do that. The real human decisions about money, about investments, about which currency I'm going to put my trust in, all of these are based on the stories that I can tell myself about those investments and what my imagination tells me is going to happen uh, in the future. Even though finance is sometimes seen as this logical, rational world, it is very much driven by the imagination, by stories and by emotions. And so uh, I think this is why System 3 has become so important in understanding the economy and the, the economic world.
1: Wow, you've given me so much to think about, Lee. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Uh, you're very welcome. Uh, I hope this uh, was interesting to your listeners, and uh, happy to carry on the conversation either on crypto Twitter. You can hopefully you can put my handle on there, which is at Lee Blue. I uh, look forward to continuing to learn what the what's going to happen with the world of crypto in this uh, unstable environment.
1: Once again, this is CoinDesk reporter Lee Quinn. For more interviews and insights, check out CoinDesk.com. Take care, everybody.